0: They change cultures. They're heat seekers. They run at adversity and embrace change. These are the Room Tilters.
1: Somebody who can change the temperature in a room when they walk in. Mm. And that's metaphorical for somebody who can influence those around them and make such an impact quickly, emphatically, and long-lasting, whether it be an organization, a team, a relationship, whatever it might be.
0: This is the Room Tilters podcast, presented by Limitless Minds. Co-hosts DJ Eitzen and Harry Wilson Founders of peak performance and leadership consulting company, Limitless Minds, explore how the best and brightest change the temperature in a room. From sports, the military, entertainment and media, clinical psychologists to CEOs, this podcast will navigate what it takes to think big and go far. And now, DJ and Harry.
1: On today's podcast, we have Moyatu Banya Keister. She has an incredible story of having to flee war-torn Sierra Leone as a child, and of course, the ripple effects and adversity faced along the way. She's a woman of faith and believes that God has given her a divine purpose to empower women to be our leaders and change agents and break social barriers. She's passionate about developing sustainable communities, channeling resources, and developing tools for women and girls globally. Super impressive. I think you'll enjoy this one. Let's go.
2: So welcome to the Room Tilters. We have Moyatu Banya, and we are so excited to have you today. How are you doing this morning?
0: I'm doing wonderful. Thank you for having me. I am just as excited and blessed to be here.
2: This is a, this is a real room tilter, you know, just like, uh, you know, that we, we, we try to bring on the best in the game and we really loved hearing your story. And, uh, obviously everybody's going to get a chance to hear it today, but how you've been empowering women and girls is, is outstanding, especially in times right, right now, right. Where we need to hear a great message. And so, um, you know, we're going to start out here. Just tell us a little bit about your 2020 and the journey. And obviously there's a lot going on. Um, tell us a little bit about where you're at and what you've been doing.
0: 2020 has been a rough year, right? Like if we think of everything that is going on and everything happening around us, right? From some of the racial injustice that has been amplified, not that, you know, it's been happening. We're just seeing it amplified in different ways to um, just the COVID-19 pandemic. I mean, you can go on and on, the natural disasters, et cetera. Um, for me, 2020 has truly been the year um, that I have I've been really reflecting and really thinking about, you know, what truly is my personal credo in this year with so much that has happened, with the world literally ravaging around us. How do you stand as a leader? How do you stand as somebody who has been called to shift things, tilt rooms, and really impact the lives of women and girls. And so I have these five P's that I call basically like my personal credo for this year. Um, The P's stand for pause, um, pray, plan, pivot, and propel. And so that's truly how my 2020 has looked. I've had to really pause. Um, At the beginning of the year, I spent some time just in fasting and prayer just because I was just led to do so. And that really set up the rest of the year for me. So even as things were going crazy, as we you know, unfortunately lost Kobe, and then just all the terrible things that happened this year, pausing was so important for me as a leader to think about kind of, you know, how are you showing up for yourself as a leader and how are you ultimately going to show up for the women and girls that you serve? Um, spending a lot of time in deep prayer is important to me as a woman, a person of faith. And then, of course, planning um, and being led to what is next, right? So there's been a lot of pivoting um, that has happened this year with the work that I've been doing, um, still extremely impactful with the women and girls, but just truly thinking of innovative ways to still reach them. Um, and of course, um, the fi- the fifth P, propelling, right? Like just making that impact still and what does that look like? So. That's what 2020 has felt like for me. It's really been a journey. and um, has been a journey of deep reflection, um, as well as a journey of thinking innovatively as a leader.
2: That pause is so important, like yeah. in times of crisis or, or times of change. Tell us about that pause. Like what do you do to just like kind of step back and, and, and look at the situation?
0: One of the things I do is I self-talk. <laughs> so in my pot, when I feel like there's just so much going on as a leader, sometimes I just have to literally take a step back and say, "Okay, why are you feeling anxious? Why are you feeling worried? Why are you feeling afraid, moyatu?" Right? And so the pause moment is a moment of self-talk, and it's also a moment of like reminding myself of of what has happened before and how God has made things happen for me. And so it's a moment where I I kind of take some time. I'm I'm super introverted as much as I'm talking now, so I may, I may look extroverted. Mm -hmm. For me, it's as somebody who has more introverted tendencies. I like to spend time alone, um, journal, pray, um, rest, deep rest, and just listen to things that feed my soul. Right. So, Uh, read the word of God, listen to really good music that feeds my soul, worship music, connecting with people who feed my soul, um, and taking time to just create and be innovative. Um, And so pausing is pausing, but pausing is also this idea of intentional doing.
1: Right, right. I mean, I think that, I think the other thing that pausing allows you to do is it leaves space for gratitude, you know, as somebody who prays and meditates and, and, and takes the time to reflect and you talk about self-talk, you know, gratitude. You know, we talk about gratitude a lot on this, on this particular podcast, you know, it's such a, it's such an awesome tool, you know, from a mindset perspective, you know, to be able to reset, to be able to you know, identify something you're grateful for, you know, you know we, we do that on our team call. We have a team call every, every day, daily update. It's a daily update. And what you're required to do before you, before you go around the horn before it's your turn is to say what you're grateful for. Right. And sometimes, honestly, it's hard because even though it's like, yeah, I'm totally grateful for everything in my life. When it comes to, when it's your turn on the mic, if you will, you're like, dang. OK, wait a second. If you haven't prepared or thought about it or paused to think about it throughout the day, you kind of start making up some stuff. You know, you come up, with, <laughs> you know, you start you start looking out the window. Let's see. What am I thankful for? Um, you know what I mean? Trying to pluck something out of the air opposed to really being intentional. Pause, pray, plan, pivot, propel. Yeah. So. So tell me about you know, OK Africa, because you were you were you were honored by OK Africa. And, and for the listeners, OK Africa is a digital media platform founded in 2011, and it's dedicated to African culture, music, politics. And in fact, it's the is the largest U.S.-based website focusing on new and progressive music, art, politics and, and culture from African countries. And you were honored by by OK Africa. Tell us about how that went down and you know how you felt.
0: I had to get from Columbia to northern Jersey where the studio was do the recording with a bunch of amazing women who were on the panel. Um, There were a bunch of like amazing African women who are based here, Black African women doing amazing work. Like um, a sister who has this amazing hair brand um, in in Brooklyn was honored that year. Another sister who um, has a diaspora kind of platform for women was also honored. So many amazing women. So even being in the space and the women who actually run the OK 100 Award are kick butt black women just doing amazing. So being in that space was so palpable and so affirming and so beautiful. Like there's nothing like being in a space where your people celebrate you uh, and honor you. And that's how I felt that day. I just felt like a queen. I felt so loved. Um, The questions just flowed. I remember even when I got up to the front to like talk about my journey, they're like, okay, we're going to do this. You may have to do three or four takes. And I just shared like once and the person was like, oh, you got it. It's fine. You know? <laughs> it's um, awesome. yeah. And so then it launched in March and just so much love from across the world. Like, you know, people who you don't even know are watching you or watching you all the time. And that um, solidified that for me in that award that I really have to be mindful as a leader in how I lead and always make sure that I'm leading authentically in the work that I'm doing and mm. showing up 110%. And so it was amazing. It was such a beautiful award. They gave us these lovely gifts that were sponsored by these amazing African uh, just designers and just it was just an amazing time, and it was it's a great platform and it's a great community to be a part of such amazing women.
2: It's it it is so powerful when you put yourself around people that are encouraging, that are similar, you know, in background, and 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 gave you the confidence to be able to share your story. And like you said, one take, which is which I'm, I'm sure is you know really cool and was probably very impactful to the audience. So.
0: Yeah, they, I mean, they they love it. To this day, people still watch the OK 100 video and will reach out to me. Hey, oh my gosh, that was so good. I love that video. I love the work that you're doing. So it actually created an avenue for people to connect with me as well.
2: So M- Moyatu, tell us about your childhood growing up in Sierra Leone and, and then you had to leave, right? You, yeah. You know? So tell us a little bit about that. What was it like back then? And and and, and what was that you know country like? And then and then why did you have to leave? And tell us a little bit about that journey.
0: I grew up in Sierra Leone to um, a family, a middle income, middle class family, Mother is a teacher, Father is an accountant. Um, they both come from very humble upbringings and kind of, um, you know, worked really hard, got scholarships. Um, so they were able to kind of come abroad to London, uh, got their degrees, and then were able to go back to Sierra Leone to kind of start a life and, if you will, family. So my childhood was amazing. I mean, I had a great childhood. I enjoyed my childhood. When I hit secondary school, which is considered, I guess, eighth grade, I entered into what was, is called the Annie Walsh Memorial School, which is the one of the oldest uh, girls' schools in the country. Um, where I actually wanted to go. So I was very kind of intentional about what school I wanted to go to. It's a big deal to enter into your school of choice after you studied and got in your your grades, which everyone in West Africa has to take. It's called the NPSC exam. And so unfortunately, around, I would say around ages nine, 10, um, I think uh, early as early as 1990, in 1991, 92, a war broke out in Sierra Leone, but more so on the provincial parts of the country, which basically means like if you were in Philly, Philly would be considered Freetown, which is where I would live, and the outskirts would be like, you know, the Poconos, like you know those places, like the outskirts of PA. And so that's basically what happened. So the war ravaged those areas. My extended family, my father's mother you know, people who were out in the towns, those towns had to move to the city. And so the war truly was just a, a war for resources, a war of frustrated young people and, um, you know, warlords taking advantage of those frustrations, um, a war around resources as it relates to land, as it relates to diamonds, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. For about, you know, six to seven years, the war stayed within some of those provincial areas. It didn't really hit the capital. I mean, we had a couple of coups. In 1992, we had a coup. Um, and then in 1996, we had a, like an overthrow. So a lot of instability, but the full-fledged war didn't really hit the capital city where I lived until 1997. So I woke up basically getting ready to go to church and you basically hear like bombs. Like just imagine you wake up out of your house and all you hear is like bombs and shooting. Wow. And that truly was like, the the biggest shift that happened in my my life, if you will, Uh, because it basically meant seeing my parents brainstorm around how their family was going to survive and what that meant. So over basically a series of months, um, what happens is that the rebels um, who had overthrown several territory in the country kind of took over the government. The president was ousted out of his role had to travel to another country, basically, you know, for safety. And we had a militia government take over. And so it, it got real, really quick. And my father was like, well, maybe we'll we'll kind of hang tight and see what will happen. Maybe the ECOMOG. ECOMOG is basically what is considered the West African militia um, mm-hmm. that come in to basically help out when things happen in different African West African countries. So my father kept relying. He said, maybe we'll get international... You know, support people will come and stop this thing. Yeah, maybe yeah. it's not too bad. So we kept living, but it was still scary at nighttime. You would hear bombs. Sometimes we hear about people um, getting, you know, houses. You know, they would come into people's houses, rape, steal, etc. So we, my father, made sure there was more reinforced security, but it just wasn't safe. And I started to realize that it wasn't safe.
2: So your parents are having these conversations in yeah. front of you, you for you, the
0: most part. Um, behind closed doors but they started to feel our anxiety and yeah. one particular day it was myself my brother my oldest brother at the time was studying in the UK mm-hmm. and um he was you know in college kind of moved on to a lot of African parents do that a lot of times they'll send their kids to uni or graduate school and so my brother was just like listen I don't feel safe anymore you know he was two years older than me at the time so I was 12 he was probably about 14 and he was like I don't feel safe anymore we have to get out of here and we all know that's not simple for parents. And so in retrospect, I now appreciate so much of what my parents had to do. So we ended up having to flee the country officially. Uh, My family basically became a target um, and we had to flee uh, because of, you know, just various political ties to other family members. And so we had to leave the country. We fled the country uh, by road. And um, we arrived in the, in kind of a neighboring country called Guinea as refugees stayed in Guinea as refugees for some time. And we were able to come to the U.S. due to the fact that we had family members here. Uh, we came to the U.S. on what is called a te- kind of a temporary status. And then after years and years and years and years became basically permanent residents. And then after years and years and years became like what you consider a U.S. citizen. Wow. And so that was basically the journey. A lot, of course, was omitted out.
2: It's amazing. I, it's... um. It has, to, it has to help kind of define who you are today, right? Being Absolutely. able, seeing that type of adversity. Is there one situation or story that sticks out that says like, it's like almost like a defining moment for you? So
0: when we left that day, we, we left, um, you know, folks had to basically disguise. I didn't, but like my father had to, we just weren't sure what we were going to meet on the road because here you have it, you have a militia government that has now taken over. There's a lot of instability, and you have rebel forces also on the road. So even though people are wearing military outfits, doesn't necessarily mean they're military on the good side. They may be military on the rebel forces side. So we went through a series of checkpoints, um, and thankfully the driver who took us, because it was myself, my mom, my dad, my brother, my dad's sister, her son, and my grandmother, who had been living in the U.S. forever and was ready to move back to Sierra Leone. She was with my aunt raising um, my cousins. And unfortunately, she's just like, I don't want to go back to America. I'm ready to retire. I just want to stay in my country. And she had to come with us. So there was like eight of us in the van. So we end up crossing, for the most part, our driver's book, all types of languages, which is what I think helped us. We saw a lot of child soldiers on the road who were threatening and et cetera. But somehow we made it through all of those checkpoints. I think the most defining moment for me was when we got to the final checkpoint. Um, And checkpoints are basically just like you know, little makeshift areas that are set up to check, to see who's going through some checkpoints had rebels and some checkpoints had like real government people. Right. Right? Um, so when we got to the final checkpoint, we didn't know who was who, um, they said, everybody has to get out of the car. And anytime you hear that, of course your heart jumps a beat cause you're like, okay, what do they have planned in this one? Um, so we get out and they separate my mom and dad in one room. They separate my brother, myself, my grandmother in another room, they're like, you guys stay here, we stay here. So after some time, for 30 minutes, we don't hear anything. They're like, okay, uh, they bring the family back. They're like, okay, we got to send you guys back. We have some names on a list and um, we are going to check the list and if your name ends up on the list, we either send you back or we decide what we want to do with you. I'm like, okay, what does that mean? So as they were kind of arguing back and forth, they, you know, kind of my family last name popped up on, you know, on the list. And um, one of the guys who was there happened to be, my mom was a teacher. She taught one of the guys who was there during the, the back and forth of them deciding if they were going to kill us or if they were going to send us back or whatever they were going to do. One of the guys happened to be my mom's student that she taught um, whilst he was in high school. And my mom was somebody who, she literally wasn't just a teacher, she was a humanitarian. So she would pay everybody's school fees who couldn't pay their school fees. Can't even remember their names to this day, but a lot of them still remember her. Now, this kid was one of those kids. So he was there and he said, no, no, no. He said, this family, he's like, I know that woman. You cannot touch this family. He's like, you have to let them go. You cannot touch this family. So that's how we escaped. We were at the brink of either getting killed or mommy, somebody getting killed or getting sent back to potential. And that time, imagine it was about 8 PM ish to then run into something else. Basically either way, it probably wouldn't have been safe for us. And I truly felt like that was the divine intervention of God because nothing else would have made it. And I've heard several stories of my colleagues who also went through survival processes during the war. And um, yeah, that's how we were set free. And then we ended up, Basically, it was like the last checkpoint before we entered into what was considered freedom, uh, Guinea, which is the next country over. Mm-hmm. So that really was defining for me. It taught me so much. It taught me about what we call in, in our culture, agile. Um, it's a I believe it's a Yoruba word. It basically means like you know doing good, sowing seed because you don't know yeah. when that seed will manifest, um, and also just realizing that we are all the same people. I don't care if you have all the money in the world or you have zilch in your account that you have to treat people like human beings because you never know what is going to happen in life. And I always tell people, I feel like I've lived several lives <laughs> literally um, <laughs> that felt like a lifetime ago, but it's part of my journey.
1: That's amazing. I mean, cause that's like legit survival. That's legit life and death that you're facing. I mean, you know, many of us, you know, you know, we talk about adversity and and facing it, and and, and all you know, all of us have our own versions of adversity that we face in our own story. But that's one of like a legit life and death, and that's just it's just wild that you faced because this was like, 90, you said 1997 or so. Yeah. And so how and you were how old at that point? I was 12. So I mean, like, that's, and obviously because you're recounting the story like vividly, you remember it. It's the impact the impact on on you then. 20, you know, gosh, I mean, almost two and a half decades ago, right. And, and it's still and it's still impacting decisions and, and choices you make now, you know, so that's, that's, that's wild. And and can I also imagine, like, in the culture that you grew up in, and, and interestingly enough, you know, you're even seeing this kind of stuff today with gender and, and, and race, um, the societal norms and, and impact uh, as being a girl or a woman in that kind of in that kind of community, that kind of culture. Um, you know, I, I I really enjoyed hearing something you said, um, around the importance of dispelling myths of like social attitudes, um, and, and the value of that, that I think you're trying to instill in some of the programming, some of the, some of the initiatives you're doing now, because, you know, you, you growing up, we're told that you couldn't do certain things simply because you were a girl, right? Um. And we hear that in different areas because you're black, because you're this, because you're that, because you're, you know, because you're a girl, whatever it might be. You know, what is the importance of dispelling myths of social attitudes? Tell us about that and um, and what we should really learn, you know, today in 2020 regarding that.
0: Yeah. Um, You know, with my social impact organization, um, it's called Girls Empowerment Sierra Leone. We do a lot of that with the girls that we work with. And I'm constantly doing that with women that I work with, um, whether it's with WCA creatives, you know, um, my company that works with women-led businesses and companies, um, or just within boards that I sit on. I think it's critical. I think we approach um, life with with a lens that we are used to uh, based on our upbringing, based on our values, etc. But I think It is critical to dispel myths that we hold about each other because myths almost become like barriers to building relationship. Myths become like masks that you put on people before they even unveil and reveal themselves to you. Myths become like, you know, the thing that kind of doesn't allow bridges to form. Mm -hmm. Uh, They become the assumption that you make before somebody even speaks you know? And so it's critical to dispel them because that's the only way you can truly get to know who a person is, who a people are, uh, what a place is. Right. I know even as, as an African woman, as a black woman, um, there are several myths that exist about black womanhood. There's several myths that exist about African womanhood. There's several myths that exist about black manhood about just right. And We all know that those myths are not true because those are false things that were created by somebody and ended up just being propagated. Myths are also created out of fear, right? And um, I think as a woman of faith, you know, one of the things the Bible talks about is like perfect love casts out fear. So if we really truly like can show up with love, when you show up with love, that's how you dispel myths. When you show up with love, that's how you open your heart and say, I want to get to know about this person. Like love doesn't look at a community and targets them over and over again and continuously shoots them in the back and and practices modern day, like lynching, right? That's not love. Like what's happening right now is not love. What's happening right now is like a buildup of 500 plus years of myths that have been created against just black people in general, you know? Um, and so it's important. Myths are extremely dangerous because when they continue to build, when they continue to form, uh, they can actually have some quite, quite violent um, outcomes. Um, and it's just not the way to go as a society.
1: 100% agree with you. I mean, I think that, you know, certainly there's myths that are like putting people on pedestals and so on and so forth. But a lot of myths are, are kind of baked in, in fear and fear is just, you know, an igniter. Right. I mean, I think it I think it accelerates. um you know, uh, trauma, you know, for, for people. And it accelerates as we've seen in America today, you know, division, um, especially when there's other things kind of put in that, in that fire. Right. politics, uh, and, and and otherwise. And so when I I was kind of just thinking about, you know, the impact you're making is, is that whole concept of dispelling myths. We try to do some of that stuff with, with, you know, our, our business, but even the foundation, the why not you foundation that we, that we have, you know, it's, it's dispelling myths just for the everyday, you know, um, person that why not you. Right. Um, and so, so I really, I really appreciate that and, and respect that perspective that you have.
2: Right. Such a great, such a great message. And you said show up with love, right? And I know that how important your faith is to you. And in you know the Bible says in First in John that God is love. So I always think like if you want to show people God, you show them love, right? I think we sometimes over overcomplicate things mm-hmm. in in certain times. And it's like as as a believer, we share that with you in terms of just showing up with love. So uh, what a great message that we need right now. When we look at like the specific things that society or that we need to do here in America right now to protect and empower women and girls, I know that's such a passion for you. Is there anything specific that stands out that we can do?
0: I think one thing that's really critical is I'm really big on storytelling and creating safe space for people to tell their stories and amplifying voices that may not be in the space so i think for instance one thing that i was impressed by uh with your podcast is your podcast is all men who male hosts but you know you're opening it up to bringing women and amplifying i think that's one brilliant way of doing it right so um i'm very big on storytelling we i've been working in partnership with um my company wca creatives with an organization called the african women's development fund usa and launching what is called the Amplify Her campaign. And the campaign is just a campaign to truly tell the stories of African women, diaspora women living in the United States and those also on the continent. And the importance of that, um, visibility is important for women and girls, particularly for Black women and girls. I always say this, that in all my work, I truly feel like the people who have really, held my hand, opened doors, sent down elevators, etc have been black women or women allies who truly believe in amplifying and creating space um and and some men you know so I think it's about the values I think it's about truly um being able to amplify the stories of women and girls being able to create spaces for women and girls so you know um I just finished up a fellowship. It's called the How Women Lead. I finished it up in November. And one of the things that the credo for How Women Lead always talks about is this importance of like um, emphasizing the voice of another woman in a space. And I think even as men, even as, you know, just right, the importance of if a woman speaks in a room, and she's not being heard for one reason or another saying, hey, I actually think what so-and-so said, you know, is quite important because that happens quite a lot, especially in corporate spaces, et cetera, where women will speak up and, you know, their voice will either be disregarded or somebody will say the same exact thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think economically, I think there's a lot that can be done in uh, women owned businesses. We know black women um, are leading kind of in the entrepreneurial space and being mm-hmm. able to have, you know, investment funds that specifically target women of color, I think philanthropic efforts, um, I work in philanthropy a lot, I think philanthropic efforts need to pay a closer attention at the issues that girls of color go through. Um, Unfortunately, during the pandemic, a lot of funders and philanthropists who have been working with girls of color have begun to pivot and uh, push their monies towards other things. And that truly leaves uh, girls in a predicament, especially girls who go through various things, whether it's trafficking, whether it's abuse, whether it's just the systems that, that are con- uh, constantly against them, right? Not just in the United States, but across the world. And what does that mean? So I think there's this idea of amplifying stories, um, investing in safe spaces for women and girls, and truly uh, bringing women and girls to the forefront, especially those who are um, who don't have visibility. And I think the third thing is really like, Investment in resources in women and girls' work.
2: I can see, you know, Harry's reaction, and it's you—you've really touched us. It's—it's it's such a powerful message. Harry and I collectively have uh, six daughters. You know. Oh no. So, uh, yeah. So Harry has three. I have three. And it's—it's it's really important that this message gets out. You know, because I think it, you're right. It does empower, and I think it—it's incumbent upon men, you know, to 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 carry that torch too. And I know that. You said that um, you know there's been a lot of you know black women that have been your allies and, and pulled you up, but you know I look at any time you know somebody is is uh, not getting a fair opportunity or shot, it becomes incumbent upon the people that that do you know have the power or you know are in a position or you know in society or whatever it is to be able to 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 pull the folks that need it up and. And so we promise, and this is something from a culture standpoint with our company and all the businesses and non for profits that we sit on, that we are going to be advocates for that. And that, that's the that's reason why we love having you on the show today.
0: I definitely appreciate it. I think, yeah, we have to. I always say, even with the work that we do with girls, I've been pushing a lot of my male colleagues in Sierra Leone. I've been pushing my husband as well to say, hey, <laughs> my husband is like in sports. He's he played soccer for a long time, long range of like just family history in uh, Sierra Leone and, and European football and soccer. And we always, I always tell him, listen, you have to do something for boys in the country. You have to do something for boys. And alongside, right? Um, one of the things I say is, yes, we're raising amazing girls, but how do we ensure that we're raising the, the, the same boys who they will interact with ultimately um, in their everyday lives. So how are we ensuring that, you know, we're supporting boys, we're telling them it's okay to cry that, you know, you know, certain things, maybe they, they may see, or, you know, just stereotypes that they may have at such a young age, trying to dispel that before it grows into other things. Right. Um, and I, so I think it's, I think it's, that is also important. I think including boys in the conversation, including men in the conversation is also just as critical.
1: Yeah, I agree. So, listen. Um, tell us about your Tea and Pepper Soup podcast, uh, where our listeners can find you there, and then also what else is what else is coming up? Like what else what else is popping off and coming up in the future for you?
0: So, Tea and Pepper Soup is a faith-based social impact podcast. We focus on stories of just various women who are trailblazers doing amazing things, really from this perspective of faith. Tea and Pepper Soup really came about because I found myself constantly giving advice, constantly mentoring, people constantly reaching out to me. And I thought maybe this is a place that I need to potentially explore as a podcast. So on my birthday, I believe 2018, it was launched. And and pepper soup is a very well-known kind of um, meal in West Africa. It's a hearty meal. It's usually served you know, as a communal thing. So the idea of tea and pepper soup is, is truly picturing yourself having an intimate conversation with me, with my guests who come on the show to learn about life, to learn about career, to learn about business um, from the lens of faith and well-being. Um, mental, we talk a lot about mental well-being, mm-hmm. but we, it, it's always centered on, on faith and um, just principles of faith in the Bible. And And kind of going through that. So even during the pandemic, some really interesting topics came up. We've been interviewing some great people. I would say um, what's coming up next, of course, definitely season three of T.M. Pepper Soup is coming up. Super excited about some of the people that we'll be chatting with and talking to, um, um, just some amazing trailblazers who are doing some great work, who are going to come just share their heart out to the people um, next, as far as like just the work that I've been doing, there's been a lot of pivoting into the digital space. So we mm-hmm. have for girls empowerment, Sierra Leone, we have this amazing, um, it's called a virtual e-learning program that we're going to be launching for girls across the West Africa sub um, as a pilot, just to see how it goes. Um, we're working on a, a pod. I'm working on a podcast for the African women's development fund. It's called the diaspora podcast that's launching, um, next month I believe that you know God is going to surprise me and do some amazing things I mean we, we have three more months left and I'm super expecting for 2020 and 2021 so that's
1: great when you gotta write that book too you gotta write that book so we're looking for that <laughs> yeah this is it's awesome so
2: now you know what Moyatu we, we have to get to the rapid fire questions Oh and, boy. and the thing
1: is, they're never rapid fire. Like no, we I, in, fact, in fact, we take way too long with no, them. We no, we, asking, we ask you follow ups, and we're <laughs> doing it. so whatever. We call them rapid fire, regardless.
2: So, all right, first one. You mentioned music. You said music is important to you. Name that song that uh, your favorite song that kind of puts you in the mood. Uh, you know, when 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 you need when you're down and, and facing some adversity. What's that song?
0: Um, there's a song. There's an artist. Her name is Mercy Chinwell. The song is Chin Doom. Um, it's like a nice upbeat song. I usually play it when I'm down and I just need to pick up the. All food.
2: right, we'll put that in the show notes. Sean's taking notes over here. All yeah. right, uh, your what's your favorite part of Sierra Leone?
0: Ah, the beaches, the beaches, and eating cassava bread and fried fish at Waterloo Junction when we're on the way to the province. I agree She painted
1: she paint paint. Paint a picture too. She painted I a know, picture. Like, so I'm, like I'm, now, I'm, I'm kind of like I'm just eating. Y'all not
0: we have like 10 beaches across the peninsula and one birthday um i think i was i I was turning 28 i did a random road trip with like just random two random guys who were on holiday and we just connected and we did a road trip across the whole peninsula to all 10 beaches so we stopped we would swim come back it was like amazing so yes the beaches and the food (laughs)
2: love it last book you've read.
0: But the one that I just literally saw today that still stood out for me was the Esther anointing. Okay. It's a really good book. really All right. good book. Yeah.
2: Who inspires you?
0: My mom. She inspires yeah. me. She's an amazing woman has been through so many lessons in life. She's so compassionate. She's so giving. She's so loving. She's so forgiving. And I'm always like, I, if I can be half of who you are a <laughs> walk and even a tip of your shoes,
2: I'll be good. I love it. All right. Last one. If you could go and have dinner with anybody living or dead, who would that be?
0: Ooh, that's a hard one. Um, I think T.D. Jakes. I think okay. T.D. Jakes, is, he has so much wisdom. I watched him um, have a, a discussion with Steve Furtick about a couple of seasons ago. And man, so much wisdom, so much <laughs> to learn from him. So he's one of my like mentors in my
2: head yeah I I follow him I follow him on uh, social media so and Moyatu it has been such a pleasure you are a gift your story I mean we just got a little taste of your story too but uh I love your journey you're young you got you got so much ahead of you keep loving on people keep impacting people and uh keep keep tilting rooms
0: Thank you. Thank you both. This has been a pleasure. Thank you, DJ, for having me. Thank you, Harry, for having me. I'm truly blessed to meet people like you who are doing some really amazing work. And I had a great time.
1: You've been listening to the Room Tilters podcast. If you love it, do us a favor and rate us, write us a review and share it with a friend. We appreciate you, our listeners. And remember, you don't have to be sick to get better.